Welcome back to another episode of Chalk Talk. We are excited to kick another episode off with Coach Brez following our EDU style format. A friendly reminder that no matter where you're getting your podcasts and where you're getting this information, there are plenty of ways that you can find our past podcasts where we go into a lot of great detailed discussion about a lot of important topics around exercise science, physical education, fitness education, and all those different things. So if you're checking it out on YouTube, on our podcast, in our Exercise Vault Within platform, there's lots of ways you can find more podcasts, more conversations. Be sure to check them all out. Let's go ahead and kick this one off. This is Chalk Talk presented by Platform. Let's go. All right, we are gonna kick another one off like we talked about, and today we are actually gonna be talking about heart rate monitoring and training. So there's really kind of two things that we were thinking about going into conversation, and we'll break them both down and sort of then try to either put them together or determine kind of how they all uh, overlap. One of which is because we hear a lot of teachers, a lot of folks talk about heart rate monitoring equipment. They might have gotten a grant for it, or they're just asking because there's lots of different devices like um, you know, Fitbits, Whoops, things like that, that have some sort of relation to your heartbeat or heart rate throughout the day. Um, and so that's kind of led us to two different things. First off, what are we even talking about when we're talking about heart rate monitoring? And then kind of even a step backwards is how your heart responds to exercise in general, because I think that's what people are kind of looking to find how that all gets connected. So mm -hmm. it's a big topic, obviously, but I think breaking down those two things separately first might help out. So when you were diving into this topic, there was a lot you found. Where do you want to begin in terms of, you know, diving in? Yeah, it's a good question. So biofeedback has become a really big uh, push within the, the fitness and training world in the last, call it 10 years. And um, simply what we're talking about is a wearable piece of technology, like you mentioned, the whoops, the Fitbits, the polar straps, or whatever the case may be, that assesses some level of activity within your body during exercise and provides the data uh, thereof uh, to dictate whatever it is you're, you're looking to, to adjust, to change, to plan, to prescribe, whatever. Um, so when we talk about heart rate monitors specifically, okay, because a lot of the wearables now track a lot of different things, accelerometers and GPS tracking, and, and there's a lot of cool stuff out there, um, but it's also kind of, call it the, the frontier, the wild, wild west, where there is you know a lot of data that you can go out and get. It's about understanding what that data is, says how accurate it is, what it can be used for. Um, so I think important to start is just, I think the most overwhelming um, thing we see, especially within uh, physical education, is the use or desire for use for standard heart rate monitors. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we're talking about is a strap around the chest, around the wrist, um, something that will in real time monitor your heart rate during a given you know, period of time, whether that's a workout or every day, all day long. Yeah, and I think that's where like we hear it a lot, especially in terms of, all right, we wanna monitor this in, you know, as I always joke, my, one of my favorite words, in real time mm -hmm. to know you know, where are you at? We hear heart rate zones, you know, we've seen them associated to colors. And I know you're going to dive into that type of stuff, sure. but I think that's a fair point in understanding that we're talking about a lot of times, not so much things that you're wearing all the time because not everyone has access to that type of stuff, but in a PE setting or in a exercise setting, okay, what did your heart do within the hour, 45 minutes, or however long the period of exercise you took part in? When was your heart rate at X, Y, Z? and for how long and those different types of things. And why does it matter? Right. So yeah, and it's a good distinction that we, we will make. And um, that being said, I, I don't want to um, not get to the point where we also talk about the, the other side of the coin, which is something like a wearable used all day long, um, because there are two very different avenues uh, with which you can use, you know, call, call it heart rate data in general. Um, right now, we'll, we'll begin the discussion talking about in the moment training class, a workout, whatever. Sure. Um, because basically what you are, you know, in essence trying to do is assess the change in your heart rate um, as it responds to activity. And this is obvious to, to most, but worth mentioning is when you become active, 
your heart will adjust accordingly. So we have our resting heart rate, which we'll talk about in a second, which is just your heart, your heart's um, frequency of beats that is necessary for just life. Yep. You're sleeping, right? That's your resting heart rate. Um, the moment you do anything more than sleep, you get up, you start moving, you warm up, you get into a workout, you train with whatever intensity uh, the day calls for, your heart's going to respond accordingly. And it's a pretty linear scale in that you begin to see a rise in heart rate. Um, and there is a big distinction that I think heart rate zones are, are more or less built around where from you know, a certain level of resting rate to something called the aerobic threshold, which is there's a certain level of activity of low intensity that you can just continue to do basically forever because mm -hmm. your body is able to use fat as fuel um, and it doesn't lead to a buildup in waste products like lactate that eventually would shut down that energy production. We've talked about in a lot of sure. different podcasts. Yep. Um, and then at that point, um, what you find is that you will increasingly gain, call it fatigue, as you work closer and closer to pure anaerobic work, um, which means that you really cannot rely on the intake of oxygen and fat for fuel. It's going to require the anaerobic system. So that's where your anaerobic threshold comes in. And then you can only work for so long. Again, we've talked about this at length, ad nauseum, I think probably in some of the other you know, energy system podcasts and everything else, mm -hmm. but there are very literal and defined stages with which your heart responds to activity. And that's where this idea uh, of zones comes in. And basically what the principle behind all of this wearable heart rate technology is, if I can monitor your heart's response to activity, I can define the level of activity that you're in at any given moment yep. and then review it after the fact as well. Yeah. So, and I think just to, to put that in, in layman's terms and, and what I try to do after you've spit out the science and, and a good job of doing so is in a lot of ways, somewhat just thinking about the ways in which we find ourselves in different levels of intensity mm -hmm. from, like you said, the most basic all the way up to, all right, I'm, I'm hitting my tipping point. We have spent entire you know, hour-long discussions talking about that. Sure. Um, so we won't go back into that into too much great detail because of that. I think where we'll transition to, and you alluded to it um, within that description, is talking about kind of the zones. We talk a lot about zones, and you mentioned zones even in that conversation because I think that's where, like I mentioned earlier, I always, I ran in when I was training into well, find yourself in the red or the orange or the green or find yourself from, you know, get back to resting zone or at like light activity zone. There's all these different ways people have labeled them, but, you know, how do those actually exist within exercise? And then more importantly, how do we actually find those zones? Yeah. And I think let, let's start there uh, because to use the data in any meaningful way, you do have to define um, you know, they call it the calculation that lets you arrive at something, call it relative intensity. Um, and this is where it, it does get a little tricky and it's where kind of the, the issues with prescriptive zone training can begin. Again, I'm not uh, necessarily an opponent thereof, but essentially speaking, um, we all have a range from our resting heart rate to our maximum heart rate. Um, your resting heart rate, like we already talked about, is the rate which your heart has to beat at its absolute slowest uh, just to you know, prolong life. Yep. Right? You just gotta, you have to have a heartbeat and the lowest it will ever be is when you are sleeping and, or in your deepest sleep. And then from there, we can climb all the way to what our maximum heart rate is. And then from there, you can basically see that there's a natural kind of uh, spectrum of, you know, beats per minute, aka intensities relative to your maximum that you can be in during activity. Then what we've done is, you know, what the field of, at large has done is basically broken down that spectrum into zones. And the way they do that is they take, there's actually multiple ways to do it. They take your maximum heart rate, subtract your, um, 
your resting heart rate. They call that your heart rate reserve. And then they ascribe percentages of that and then add it back to your resting heart rate um, and give you kind of like your individual um, number of beats per minute range for you know low intensity, medium, high. And we'll go into each one of these specifically. Yep. Mo most people just say, okay, what's your maximum heart rate? And then we're going to give you a target percentage thereof. Yep. And so you're saying, you know, it sounds like you being, you know, individuals. It's and highly, so, highly individual. And so I think that's where, you know, as I mentioned, you know, oh, resting heart rate. And everybody kind of has an idea of what that should look like. Or, you know, heart rate when you're at, you know, medium to moderate intensity. There's a, there's a, so is your mine, whoever's listening, are our resting heart rates the exact same or are they highly individual and it's that's where we get into sort of trying to define it becomes a little bit more difficult. No, they're, they're, they're very individual. Um, now, there are some people that would argue that there's enough consistency across kind of broad demographics that you can you ballpark, mm -hmm. but many would argue that um, it is very, very individualized. So to be of use, you have to be very individual. And there are very much ways to do that. Um, and because of these pieces of equipment, you can more easily get individual. Yeah. But if you want to do this you know, properly, what you need is a true resting heart rate, which, again, as we talked about, sure, somebody walking into class before activity, their heart rate before you do anything could be called their resting heart rate. But as you Might and I would probably argue, the middle of your school day, after a test, after you know whatever you've done earlier in the day, even just walking down to the gym, getting changed, your heart rate is not, no longer really identifying your true resting heart rate. Your resting heart rate is something that you're gonna have to basically monitor over time. Um, maybe you take it the moment you wake up every morning um, and, and it will change. It will change um, as your fitness level improves or degrades, right? So your resting heart rate will drop lower and lower the more aerobically fit you become. Mm -hmm. It will go higher and higher if you are, you know, out of shape. Um, but to make, you know, matters even more complicated, um, we'll talk about maximum heart rate as well, but resting heart rate and maximum heart rate are going to be wildly up to 20% influenced by the heat of the day, your stress, um, just what is going on that day, altitude. So you need a very, very individualized in the sense of not just the person, but the person, the environment, the day to know what your resting heart rate is. And then maximum heart rate is similar. Um, many people use the equations. There are a number of equations, some considered more accurate than others. The most stereotypical or historically um, used is the uh, 220 minus your age gives you your maximum heart rate. But that's not actually your maximum heart rate. The only way to find your maximum heart rate is to do a maximum heart rate test. Sure. Um, and that might be, they said the gold standard for finding your maximum heart rate is a, a treadmill stress test in the lab. Um, or you can simulate one on your own with you have the heart rate monitor, which, you know, do a warm up, um, then you, you know, run a mile of, of tempo, which is just kind of, again, continuing to warm up. And then you increase your speed every 400 meters until you're going all out. And then at the end, you have a pretty good sense for what your maximum heart rate is. And that will vary quite a bit between mm -hmm. people, um, you know, regardless of your age, because people are in shape, out of shape, or whatever the case may be. So sure. you want to find the top and bottom to be able to use anything in between. Yep. And I think that's a part we, we, we have a tendency to skip over is like, well... I'm just going to say everybody's 60 and their age, since I'm working with all 13-year-olds, 16-year-olds, whatever is the maximum. And I'm just going to say you have to be into this zone. Well, unfortunately, that kind of throws out the window of individualized and relative intensity because you are no longer applying the actual top and end, yeah. top and bottom. Yeah, so to that vein, sticking with maximal, because I think that uh, brings you to a good point in terms of then talking about that prescriptive nature of, yep. uh, you know, like, all right, well, we found a maximal, just like we might have a max lift, a max back squat, bench press, whatever it may be. And then we can program and prescribe based off of that. Mm -hmm. Do people, does it lend the same kind of element of being like, all right, well, just like we sometimes have to retest bench or back squat or anything else like that, we might find different maximal heart rates throughout a given time, but we're going to program based off of that in terms of finding other heart rates. It's like that max 
if you will, that number that we then program around. Sure. I mean, because, you know, by definition, you are um, basically allowed and enabled to prescribe or monitor or review your heart's activity relative to its minimum and maximum. So you can prescribe relative intensity work. Um, And that's where these zones come in. So I think it's worth kind of going through what those zones are. Sure. Um, I would also mention here, and this is where, again, you know, this is why it's all a little bit kind of fluid and ambiguous. It's a little bit of the frontier in the sense that even the zones, I've seen five, six, and four. So there's a lot of different zones. Um, And again, it's kind of, to some degree, semantics, so long as you have a set and you have a reason for it, and yep. whatever you follow makes sense. But it's not, there's no like scientific definition that says yeah. this is this zone. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point because I think right now we're not in a lot of, in a lot of ways sort of kind of breaking down why or why not, you know, uh, heart rate zones can be effective or a good use of time. I think for me personally, I remember in my training, uh, even through college, we would use heart rate zones a little bit more like liberally, if you will, in terms of understanding like, all right, like this is meant to be, you know, really low intensity, make sure your heart rate's not through the roof. And it was more so just a way of like, and, and we haven't even talked about this, uh, uh, but yeah, the, 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 sync, the, the actual count yourself, the, the actual count, check your pulse, watch the clock, count for 10 seconds. How many heartbeats are you at? And it was in my opinion, used as a very good strategic tool just to give you a ballpark. It wasn't like live or die. We're, we're, we're absolutely going to base it off of this, but it was more so, hey, we really aren't intending to be past kind of that moderate intensity. Everybody check their heart rates. Hopefully we're around this range. If your heart's thumping through your chest, we need to bring it down. And I think that and maybe just to take kind of a, a tangent in a little bit is is what we might be getting to in heart rates. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but is not so much like let's use it as like credence, science, and fact of like we need to be at this number all the time, every time, everything else like that. But even just a simple check-in in terms of baselines, well, just or not baselines, but rough ranges gives some context to what we're doing at times. Absolutely. I, look, I, there's nothing... Uh, there's everything that can be very powerful about monitoring heart rate relative to activity in, in specific scenarios, it's extremely useful. And what you just painted was the picture of a collegiate swim program, which for our intents and purposes today, you could call what to some degree an endurance sport, right? You are only focused on cardiac output to propel your body. Right. That's an oversimplification. No, I got you. I got you. you. Compared to say a weightlifting session or mm-hmm. um, anything else is your training for your sport is very much dictated by the ability to train across multiple um, and broad spectrums of um, call it aerobic intensity, anaerobic intensity as well so that you hone in on your race pace. Your race pace is probably the best way to describe it because the overwhelming use of heart rate training is done for true endurance athletes. So, I mean, everything you look up, right? Like you can do all the research you want. Keep this all in mind as I go through these zones. This is very much been researched for, built for, and used by athletes that are training for 5Ks, 10Ks, marathon runs. So keep that all in mind when we talk about it because that is extremely powerful data because that's something that you are hyper-focused on and it is the kind of sole purpose of your training. Yep. Um, And that's, again, you know, it's really important to mention before I even talk about the zones themselves because they very much lend themselves to be understood and used in the world of running, swimming, biking, rowing. Yep. Um, So that's, that's, that's a great point. Um, so if, if you'll allow me just to go into sure, the trans- zones. Yeah, sorry to, to, no, to, to, to tangent that's a little a bit. Point. But let's go into the zones. Um, like you said, there's different interpretations of them from four to five to six. Talk us what you looked at, at found, or maybe one that's maybe the prevailing kind of people use or, or yeah, are familiar I, I, with. I'm going to go with the, the, five, um, the five zones. Uh, again, it's a little bit all relative, but it, it, you know, worth kind of highlighting. Zone one is you know basically that 50 to 60% of maximum heart rate area where you are not resting 
but you are in, call it warm up or recovery. So you are inducing increased blood flow, but you are not fatiguing yourself. And this very much is the easiest one to define and term is the, the warm up and cool down. This is to get yourself moving before activity or to bring yourself back down to between higher intensity bouts. Yep. Um, or on days off when you are in just recovery mode, you can perform this for 40 minutes uh, because it's not going to fatigue you. It's not going to add strain that you can't recover from. Um, and you could theoretically do this all day. Um, so zone one, you know, what the benefits promotes blood flow, speeds recovery, um, training sessions, it's a warm up, a cool down, recovery between intervals. You're just moving at conversational pace, walking, cycling, um, whatever the case may be, or maybe recovery sessions where you hop on a bike for 20 to 30 to 40 minutes, depending on your ability at something that you don't ever really have to stop. You're never going to be <sighs> out of breath. Um, you're able to just move light and easy for a long, long period of time. It's, it's pretty simple in that sense. Yep. Um, when you get beyond that, um, when you start getting into zone two, which is, and they, just, they basically break it off in 10, 10% increments mostly, which is why, again, this is all about relative more than it is about like hard and fast zones. Um, 60 to 70% of your maximum heart rate is still going to feel pretty easy, um, but it's just after that aerobic threshold. So up until your aerobic threshold, you could do something forever. After that point is when if you increase intensity, you start accumulating fatigue to the point where eventually you can't do it. Um, and so the beauty of zone two is that you can spend a lot of time in it because it still feels easy, um, but your body is going to adapt to that strain because you are adding strain and you will become over time uh, able to endure that level of intensity and be able to go faster at lower intensities because your body has changed. Your body will get better at burning fat. Um, again, this, the myth of the whole fat zone, it's, you're not going to burn more fat and become super lean because you only train in this. You, your body becomes efficient at that metabolic process. Mm -hmm. I think we've talked about and debunked the whole fat burning zone myth yep. in another podcast. We won't talk about it, but basically Calorie in, calorie out. It's your entire session that sure. matters most, not what zone you're yeah, in. Yeah, and, and we've talked about that in our nutrition series as well. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, literature and videos and things out there that we've talked about in terms of that, some of those myths around fat and fat burning and things like that. So I'll let you keep going into maybe some of the benefits of that zone too, like you talked about. You, you already touched on those. Anything else? It, it's important for everybody. Yep. And this can't be lost on people that are training athletes, I think. Um, Training in, in zone two builds mitochondria and slow twitch muscle fibers, which allows you to improve your overall endurance and speed because you are able to clear lactate faster. So you can stay higher at lower intensities. So you can run faster, move faster with less strain. Yep. Um, and it allows you to clear the byproducts of trending towards anaerobic activity faster, which again also allows you to move that, that kind of line out. Um, now, again, this is where I want to kind of very much harp on the fact that this has been theoreticized and used by endurance athletes most because, you know, if you go look up a sample zone two session, they're spending a lot of time. We're talking, I'm, I'm looking right here, long base building sessions of over 90 minutes. Yep. Right. So, Keep this small in mind, again, when we talk about like circuit workouts in class, 20 minutes, we're going to talk about how, you know, heart rate zone training might be a bit more difficult when you're looking at really small windows of time and non-pure cardio. Um, again, just another caveat with the same point, but important to mention. Proceeding further, 70 to 80% of your heart rate, call it zone three moderate effort. Um, now you're kind of, you know, pushing yourself a little bit harder where you are feeling that fatigue. Um, you are out of your comfort zone, but you can continue. Um, and this is where it's, it becomes a bit of a no man's land because a lot of people feel like this is the most effective because they can do it for a long period of time, but it feels uncomfortable. Yep. Uniquely enough, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it is more valuable. In fact, it's probably 
I don't want to ascribe value to any of them, but it, it, it's not the most valuable, despite mm -hmm. what it might feel like, which is where a lot of us probably fall into the trap of like, again, there's nothing wrong. Any activity is good activity. But if you just say like, well, I'm uncomfortable today and I did it for, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, that's better than five minutes all out or 10 minutes of all out with rest or, you know, an hour and a half at a walk pace or whatever, because that's not necessarily how, you know, the rate of perceived exertion, um, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the best thing for you. Yep. There are absolutely um, training benefits. You know, you're not going to go, you're not going to get super, super fast because you're uncomfortable. You're also not going to build tons and tons of endurance because you're uncomfortable for a long period of time. But there are important um, benefits. Um, more muscle fibers are engaged and your body builds even more mitochondria in those muscles. And you develop uh, greater uh, capillary networks, which means oxygen transfer um, and muscle economy is just improved in general. Again, we know that it, there's nothing wrong with that 30 to 40 minutes of uncomfortability. You do that every day. We all know that you become better. Mm -hmm. um, it might be within just that window, yep. um, but you do become better. Um, you know, an example, again, to harp on that whole idea of, you know, we're talking about, you know, relatively long duration items, you know, a zone three training, training session might be, you know, 10 to 30 minutes at a time for multiple sets. Yep. And, you know, with, and that's, you're more so saying, just to clarify with, you know, you touched on it in zone two as well, but, you know, that's if you're trying to like stay consistently within this zone. Cause we're going to try to yes. obviously talk about, you know, in any given workout, if you're living within a, a, a workout, you could be in all of these different zones. So you're, you're talking right now. If, um, without to, derailing to the conversation, to zone. be within that zone. Yes, okay. and and well, and a really important. I'm glad you said that because there is no you should be in this zone this many times a week or this many times in a workout. It's all dependent on what you're trying to do and yep. how you're trying to be proactive about it. If you're a marathoner, you might be like, today is my zone three day. This is my zone five day where I work speed. This is my zone three where I'm working, you know, kind of moderate intensity endurance. This is my zone two day where I'm building my aerobic base. There might be somebody that's just a casual fitness goer that says on every day, I want to be in zone one for 10 minutes, zone two for 20 minutes, zone three for 10 minutes and zone five, whatever, so that you hit all of them. The idea is you do want to train all of them, yeah. whether that's by day or within a day. Yeah. And it's just like the same way we've talked about, you want to train all those different foundational human movements, which was our last episode. So. Right. Okay. Um, so I think that's good. I'm glad we clarified that. Let's go to zone four. We're kind of ramping up here. Yep. So zone four is 80 to 90% of your, your heart rate. That's the target range. Um, we're talking, you know, shorter um, intervals of activity at higher intensity. I mean, this is a hard effort zone. Um, and this is where things get tricky because uh, zone four is probably where things are the most dangerous because you are working at a, a relatively high intensity incurring a lot of cardiovascular strain, but you're not at the point where your body's going to be able, or you're just going to not be able to per perform it for very long and have to stop. Yeah. So this is where overtraining happens a lot. And this is, I think, you know, where a lot of the, the war on, you know, conditioning that we talk about and other things with athletics, has stemmed from is if all you're trying to do is go super hard and not recover um, for long periods of time, you're going to lead yourself to, to injury without reaping the benefits of maximal intensity or low intensity type of effort. So we're talking, this is, we're, we're now in the, you know, the anaerobic threshold. We're putting a lot of stress on the body. If you go super hard and then don't account for the, the recovery, you're actually going to kill off the mitochondria that you've built up. So again, this is where you, you have to be pretty um, proactive in the way you're doing things is a lot of hard isn't always better. Sure. Um, so we are in the zone where anaerobic threshold happens. Like it's happening right in the middle, which is where we say that you've hit the point where now you are in the law of, not law of diminishing returns, but you're going to have a, a, just an end point where you can't continue. Um, now there are absolutely benefits, right? So you'll build, um, you know, call it power in the muscles, your ability to sustain higher speeds, higher, higher speeds for 
significantly greater periods of time. Um, and you will also build mitochondria and fast twitch fiber. So that sounds like, you know, you're, it's all good, right? You're also going to teach your body to treat or, or deal with lactate better. Um, we talked about this is where I think if you go back and talk um, to our energy system podcast, like anaerobic training, this is where we're living, right? So yeah. anaerobic training is, or glycolytic, um, where you are going to reap some serious benefits, but you can't really do many efforts, mm-hmm. right? Like you are, you are expending everything you have. So it either requires a lot of recovery um, or very rare and sparse utilization of this zone. Sure. Um, you know, call it really intense, but not super short sessions. Um, you know, one and two minute all out runs. Like I'm talking sprints, like, yeah. you know, testing your 800, right. which if you, well, I mean, we're at eight, you said 80 to 90%. So like in swimming so like, for you, like a, a two minute race would be what, what, what? That's race? a minute 45 to two minutes. You know, that's like of, of a 200, fr- 200, yep, 200 exactly. freestyle. So that would be saying, okay, I want you to run that at essentially your fastest ability. Mm-hmm. Um, how much time would you need to recover after that? And, and that was always the biggest thing. We talked about that in a lot of different podcasts, and it does take way longer than you'd think. We try right. to get back in 10, 15 minutes, but like you're still feeling it because yeah. of what you've just put yourself through. It takes a while um, for sure. I think that's a fair like connection, and I think everybody kind of knows that. If you said, like, are we gonna, even I think sometimes we look at it like let's do one lap around the track. I think everybody's found themselves maybe sprinting a friend or racing a buddy mm-hmm. or like let's run down the football field and back, whatever it may be. Like I think a lot of times, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's where a lot of people might end up living in like a zone four, if you will, in terms of percentage or is that? Yeah, they've, they've basically said um, that they want to go all out, but they've picked duration that is a little bit past probably farther than they want because you really can't do it a a number of times and you can only reap so many benefits from it. And if you try to do it over and over again, you're just going to run the risk of overtraining. Um, and as we've talked about, you're probably just going to fall out of that zone, right? Because you just can't keep that up. Um, and this is why it's a natural segue. Zone five is your all out right? You're 90 to hundred percent and you can't keep that up for very long. We're talking, you know, a hundred meter world-class sprinters are only at their top speed for about 50 meters and then they slow down. Yep. So we're talking about, you know, anywhere between zero and 40 seconds of, of all out effort, probably closer to 20 seconds or less more in that pure anaerobic, not even glycolytic type of, uh, metabolic energy creation where your body's just going it, to, it's going to slow you down. You just can't do it anymore, yep. um, which is why it's a little less, quote unquote, dangerous. If you want to go out and do resp- repeated sprint training, you're not doing repeated sprint training at all out 400s. You're maybe doing it at all out 50s with you know, a minute, minute and a half of rest. Um, and these are very, very um, beneficial interval um, training zones. I mean, you're, you're going to improve your all out maximum speed. Um, there is an endurance benefit to it, right? Because you're going to use all your muscle fibers. You're also going to be kind of aerobically catching up during recovery, which is why aerobic is also important for the recovery thereof. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's an important part of training. I think we've talked about a million times, like the power and the high velocity, high rest is just as important as yeah. the opposite. Yep. So, um, zone five is super important, you know, five sets of, 20 seconds with 20 seconds rest or uh, 40 seconds with, you know, a, a minute and a half rest or whatever. There's a lot of, there's a large range here. Um, you can think of it classically of, you know, if I'm with my football athletes and we're working max speed, you know, their heart rate probably does jack up quickly to, you know, 90%, but we're only working for about 50 meters and then we're in recovery mode. So, and this is maybe just another kind of small caveat, like, most heart rate monitors actually don't catch up to your your actual heart rate for about 10 to 15 seconds. So if you're working in six to 10 second intervals, pretty hard to, one, hard to check it. Am I at 90% right now? Um, so zone five, is it even relevant from a in the moment tracking? Probably not, maybe a review of your effort after the yep. fact. Um, and so I think that, 
if you're set with zone five, at mm -hmm. least from a summary, I think is a perfect segue actually into talking about how this actually applies, um, how this actually works within schools, because I think like um, in the effort of putting it into context, but also uh, brevity, I don't want to misrepresent, you know, what a heart, what a polar versus a whoop versus a, because right. we don't. We're not doing a, a review of all of the different no. ones. We, we just don't possibly have the time. Rather, let's just talk more at a high level in terms of thinking about like the big question of like how we can actually approach using this type of data, be it in real time or review in a classroom setting or with our athletes. Because I think that's where we're sort of like lending this conversation to. Some people might even just be not even using wearables they might be trying to tap into like we mentioned earlier you know checking your pulse be it in your you know neck or your wrist or whatever it may be is that something we are using in real time trying to figure it out or are we doing it to review uh -huh. let's just kind of put it into context and, and look towards taking all that information you just gave us from the zones to how it works with different thresholds and x y and z to kind of where does that fit into a teacher or a coach or a student or an athlete's perspective? Yeah, this is the big question um, because we're operating within very small windows of time um, and it makes prescriptive zone training somewhat difficult uh, for everything you just stated is that even if you are a PE teacher with access to all of this data, and you are going to build a uh, you know heart rate zone training program that's individualized because everybody has their metrics. Um, it one is most and only highly useful for if you are looking at long, more cardio-based activity, and two requires in the moment adjustment by athletes. So if you're saying, hey, today is my zone one day, or today we're gonna go from zone one to zone two to zone three, that means one, whatever you're doing either has to be up on a monitor, a la Orange Theory, right? I believe is what mm -hmm. I've never actually been. Um, so that you can see, am I, with my own metrics and my own heart rate today, am, where I, I, am to I supposed to be, am I where I'm supposed to be? Yeah. Um, it also means that you have had to decide where those athletes are supposed to be. And that's not just like a today we're gonna do X or red is always good and green is always bad. Yeah, because I think the part I always got trapped up with in thinking about this myself or talking about it with teachers and coaches who ask questions about it and I would try to give them a fair answer is that like, you know, a lot of times for someone to do a certain activity or to quote unquote try to keep up with their friend or whatever it else may be, sometimes might find themselves in one versus the other. Not, it's so hard, I think, to keep everybody. Now, of course, we're, we're going to maybe say we want everybody to look at this as not a conditioning piece, but a focus on plyometrics. Or we want them to focus on, you know, the, the, the form and technique and not just rushing through it so your heart rate gets jacked up. There's ways that, again, like I mentioned earlier, we can apply it in its most basic sense. But I think to your point about, you know, trying to find it for each and every individual kid up on the screen, all of those different things. Hey, you drop too low, but it's because you're making sure you do it right or you, you're way too high. Like that's where it gets into this like practical application. It's just, you know, somewhat of a, a, um, a maze to, to try to navigate. Well, it, 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 well, it's tough because there are, again, I, I want to state like if you were training a bunch of Olympic uh, distance or even sprinters or marathoners, this is a highly, highly useful um, instrument that lets you get extremely targeted in your training. Mm -hmm. But we're not really talking about situations in which all we're gonna do is cardio and with a demographic that's gonna be in training environments that are building from one thing to another yeah. and have the time to do 60 minutes of a zone one as a recovery day right. and then multiple sessions of whatever, zone two, three, four. And then to your point, most teachers and coaches are building workouts that are not just cardio elements. And heart rate plays a role in all of that. But that means then we're gonna say, okay, look, I have assigned 
this 10 minutes is warm up and I need you all to stay within this zone. This, you know, 15 minutes is going to be our power and strength and I need to see spikes, but I need to see you recover in between because there is, there, you could very much, if you really want to get into the weeds, say, you're not gonna do your next maximum effort jump, lift, whatever, until you've gotten back down to zone two or one so that we know you're back at a, call it a fully rested state. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the latter half of the workout is when I want to do targeted uh, aerobic base building. So maybe zone two and three or some overlap of the two. And I want you here for you know, 20 minutes. Again, that is very fair. That's totally doable, but it becomes a lot to manage. And it also requires either you constantly monitoring, knowing where everybody should be at every point in time, and then telling them, hey, you're going through the power stuff too quickly, you're not resting. Or, hey, you're in the middle of your workout, which unless it's right in front of me, I gotta chase you down while you're running and say, you are, you know, you're in zone two, you're supposed to be in zone four, um, or whatever the case may be. And again, that becomes very difficult. It, if you're one-on-one -on -one or one-on-three with a bunch of elite athletes, that are working out for an hour and yep. can adjust you know, after five minutes, after 10 minutes, sure. So it becomes a bit harder from a pres prescriptive and in the real, real time moment. Yep. But I would counter that with saying it can be very, very useful, empowering data in review. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of people, I think, do tend to use it or it does lend to the arguments of the power of fitness, power of exercise, making the case for why it's important both to their peers, their colleagues, administrators, as well as to students. Hey, look at what you did today or look at what you did over the last week, last month. So like even, you know, the, the book we cite all the time in physical education Spark, yeah. of Spark, they cite heart rates a lot through that as that being one of the metrics to indicate like we did actually get into exercise and therefore we can start to kind of, that's, that was a consistent or, you know, something that we looked for within those different sample groups and studies. Yeah. Or, hey, I'm taking this data to my physical, excuse me, department chair or administrator, superintendent and saying, you know, physical education has its benefits. We know that this is to be true if they're, and we have kids, you know, at these levels of exertion in a given hour session, but that's big time data. You're not showing a lot of times like, hey, look at Sam Breslin, this is the number he hit throughout. Like, I think the, the review component of it, if you have access to it, if you have the ability to have wearables, that's awesome. You got a grant, you got this, you got that. You have the opportunity to sort of take some of that data and put it into perspective of the bigger picture. Yes, and I think that this is super important to mention is if you are lucky enough to have heart rate monitors and every athlete can use one, every student, excuse me, then it comes into class. You have at a bare minimum, a black and white set of data that is proof of or of not actual activity every single day. Yep. So honestly, by, by and large, by itself, that is super valuable for PE teachers know, like just to be able to show you did or did not is big. Yep. And, and you might never need to get any more specific than that. Like, hey, you never, because you missed this many classes or you just didn't give any effort, you never even approached zone three with your own individual metrics ever. Or this class um, has hit, you know, a, call it a, a level of activity every single day for the entire, you know, quarter, you know, this is my proof of what we're doing in class potentially even more useful, but of requiring even more big picture type data analysis is I personally believe the larger benefit for a, call it general pop, fitness-based um, kind of review is not the what zones do you hit, right? Not prescribing zones, not prescribing anything else is what is the trend of your larger metrics cardiovascularly over the course of a quarter. So what I mean by that is if you wear a wearable beyond just the 30 minutes, if you have one on every day, and I know that's not reasonable, but I just want to explain what I mean by that yeah. um, for everybody is you can track your resting heart rate over time. If your resting heart rate over three months of taking class has dropped by five beats per minute, 
you have become more cardiovascular in shape, right? You have done a service to your heart um, and made it more healthy. If you've increased your beats per minute at the maximum end, you have pushed yourself and increased your quote unquote performance. Yeah. And almost every one of these, and I don't want to get into the rabbit hole of HRV, but heart rate variability is something that goes is part and parcel of heart rate monitors in general and was what everybody uses now to actually monitor load, strain, and the balance of the two. You know if kids are not ready to train that day because they are overstressed physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever. You know that they've improved their heart rate variability over time. Like the heart rate variability has gone up, which means again, it is proof of fitness gain. Uh, and those are things that you could say, I am actually gonna use these, maybe not grading, but proof of what did you get out of this class? What did this class give to the, the student population? If you wanna wear these things every day or have students, there were some companies that were promoting like, hey, have every student come in in the morning, the first thing they get to school is take their, their heart rate so we can get their HRV and their resting heart rate. And then if you do that every single day, add in also your activity, then over time you can track what has happened sure. to you. So I think that's probably an even greater, if you wanna talk about you know, actual you know, results and data analysis, it's more about the big picture trends and things beyond in the moment heart rate because of exercise. Yeah, and I think that's probably a good place to start to trend towards wrapping up. There's obviously, I think, as you just mentioned there, two, even within this discussion, two things that I think worth noting is we're talking about, you know, a wearable that you could wear in a given class, which a lot of people might find themselves in either as a student or a teacher being able to work with, all right, like I can hand these out use them, collect them back. Right. Then the next thing is, okay, like now a lot of technology, even I think Apple watches now have all sorts of stuff. It's like- are getting closer are, and closer to that every, every release. Are finding ways to say, okay, you have this on, you wear it all the time, let's give you some data, some information and go with it. So we spent a good amount of time talking about the practicality of how it looks in more of like the kind of like small hour long session or whatever class might look like. I think probably worth just wrapping up um, as, as someone who uh, you, wears one yourself, yep. um, a, a, a version of it, you know, you use it where I would say personally right now and where I'm at in my life, I don't wear one, I don't use it. And for a lot of reasons, I, I look at it as because I don't know what I would do with that data. I don't know if I would take that and look to apply it or change anything or uh, uh, other than that, be like, oh, I have to be doing X, Y, or Z. That's maybe just not where I'm at personally. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know if it's worth at least noting after, not critical, but uh, uh, analytical of all sides of the argument and noting that you, Sam Breslin, do in fact wear something that monitors heart rate. Yeah, so I think that's important because I, I would bet most people that would listen to this conversation would just assume that I'm just, it's not worth it, not worth my time. I'm working with high school athletes or, or whatever the case. I love, and I'll, I'll say, it, I love my whoop. There's, it's not because it's the best. I'm not paid by them or anything. Um, <laughs> there's, I, no there's no sponsorship there's no sponsorship. Um, I love it for myself. I have not taken it off except a shower since I bought it. And I love everything about it. I love the data collection. I love the big picture trends. I love knowing, you know, what things over time have happened. When do, uh, you know, when, when has my fitness gain been the best? When have I lost it? Oh, my HRV and resting heart rate were deteriorated in the month and a half after having my child. Um, sleep was changed, HRV was changed. Um, I love knowing that on certain days, if I've had a long weekend, if I've had a couple of hard workouts in a row, I know that today my body has indicated that I'm not necessarily ready for super intense exercise. I think there is extremely, a large range of value that an individual can pull from biofeedback. I mean, obviously, right, because it's a massive industry. It's not built on a complete house of cards. Um, so I think that there is a lot that can be gleaned from knowing these things. I think my, my stance is that the value I find is because it's highly individualized and I can look at it and make assessment and action or reaction based on my own individual data that has 
know, I know my resting heart rate because it's measured it every day for half a year, right? So I know what that is and I know how it's trended. Sure. And the fact that it's highly individualized and it is big picture. I don't ever care really about my heart rate during a workout, even though I wear one. So I, I think there's just a balance there um, because I'm not a, I'm not going to go train for cardio. Like I'm not looking to improve my. Um, You're not a marathon runner. No, God no. Um, so look, I think there is a ton to be said for wearables. I think there is a ton to be said for heart rate monitors. I think that there is a, a much different conversation to be had when you're talking about using it with large groups of young, um, inexperienced students or athletes. Um, if I had infinite money, maybe I would get one for every one of my football players, but I would only do that if they were going to wear it every day, all day. Um, and I could use it to say, hey, today we're burnt out. Let's not crush a workout. Today yep. we are feeling awesome, so we're going to have a great game tonight. You know, those types of things. Um, it might not be practical um, in many PE environments. Mm -hmm. It might be, and I, I should say, like, if you are somebody that has the ability, somebody is giving you the money to go out and get these things. By no means are they not you. Like, don't add value. Yeah. Right. If you have the ability to hand them out every day, you can track that data easily over time. Yeah. Maybe it's not your true resting heart rate. Maybe it's your midday at 10 a.m. before PE class resting heart rate, and that it's not your activity level heart rate. But that too will trend. Yeah, and I think if your ceiling or your floor is lower, then your just above floor will also be lower. Right. So you can track those things and still find trends. Yeah, and I think people that start to like shift and adapt the way they use heart rate monitors, at least from what I've heard and gleaned from other people that have gotten to use them. Mm -hmm. um, I have a friend actually who teaches middle school PE who's used them, and it's like, yeah, a lot of that data is valuable, and sometimes it's a little bit tough because it's like, all right, we have to slow down. I have to stop for five minutes because something happened in class. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you look at that five minutes and why was everybody's heart rates brought back down or whatever it may be. It's like, there's all these variables. And I think to me at least is not getting locked into like, I have to be every single day with my kids, hitting them in these different rates because it's just, it's not realistic to how a class I think is going to go without possibly needing to kind of adjust, readjust, teach something, review something. Yeah, go it, into detail all those data. different types of things. It's yeah. just data and it's not a golden rule for what to do and assuring that that will happen. Sure, sure, absolutely. And I think that's a good breaking point. I think that's a good stopping point uh, of interesting conversation, especially in the world of thinking about this as it becomes more available. Like you said, I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to start finding a little bit more information and data around yeah. this type of stuff with the technology that's coming out and becoming more affordable, more manageable, et cetera. So uh, appreciate everyone listening. This was a conversation that's been driven off of a lot of PE teachers asking us about heart rate monitors, heart rate zones, different things like that. Um, if you have other questions or other topics that you want to hear us discuss, break down, look into, we would be happy to do it. You just got to let us know. Reach out to us at platform.com. Coach Brez, thank you very much. Thank you. And remember, here at Platform, it's always in pursuit of better. Thank you.